it's important to talk about this like as loudly as possible uh, but also build systems of care we need to be there for women long after the allegations are made welcome to repicture a podcast of the everyday projects that explores evolving conversations on the ethics and practices of visual storytelling When talking about our work, photographers and filmmakers tend to repeat phrases such as giving voice to the voiceless and shedding light on stories of survivors. But when we ourselves become victims of abuse, when is it a good time to speak out? How can we support each other? And just how inclusive has the Me Too movement been? On this week's episode of Repicture, we talk about sexual harassment within our industry. I'm Nyasha Kadandara, a filmmaker based in Nairobi, Kenya, from Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. I'm Tasnima Sultan, a visual storyteller from and based in Saudi Arabia. We are your hosts of Repicture. Thanks for joining us. A quick but important note before we dive in. While in this episode we focus on experiences of harassment of women by men, we want to acknowledge and recognize that harassment also takes place and affects other genders, particularly those who identify as LGBTQ+. Back in 2016, I was in the New York Times building attending what would be my first portfolio review with editors from publications I had admired for years. I didn't know anyone beyond following them via social media. I remember a fellow photographer reaching out and asking to see the list of editors I was to meet, and she replied swiftly, "All of them are great except for him. But then again, he only likes young blonde women. If he makes you uncomfortable, speak out," she said with a serious tone that I'd never heard before. I was shocked, unprepared, and speechless. This man that she was pointing to did later see my portfolio, and he went on to publish and support me. I didn't experience anything that made me feel uncomfortable, but from then on I was always wary of him and appreciated the sisterly affection shared by my fellow photographer. Only a year later, we all started hearing and seeing the hashtag #MeToo make waves on social media platforms, and the movement became a frequent topic within our own conversations. Women initiated groups to discuss where the line was and how they could feel confident enough to speak out. The lines differentiating between groping, flirting, and even rape were murky at times. Across the industry, people began to question all kinds of behavior, including behavior that had previously been considered innocuous. As stories were shared, it became clear that many people, including women, had turned a blind eye to certain behaviors or perhaps defended the men in question. Agencies, photographers, and collectives hired high-profile lawyers to defend behavior that was once either kept quiet or accepted in an industry that prides itself for uncovering injustices. It's worth mentioning that I myself have experienced harassment by men I thought were friends. This episode has not been easy for me to work on. In the aftermath of my own experiences, I turned that anger and pain into a drive to work on protecting myself and those who I love. I went to therapy for a few years and still feel uncomfortable to discuss my own story even with friends. While the Me Too movement didn't exactly free me, it was more than a mere phrase. 
many women felt it was the right time to come forward and share experiences. One of the women whom I deeply admire is Anastasia Taylor-Lynn. She says that in 2014, she was harassed by a member of her former agency. The male photographer denies the allegations. The agency suspended him, and he ultimately resigned. A photographer of the agency that I was part of um, grabbed my vagina in a, uh, in a, at a, an agency AGM annual general meeting um, at that time, brushed off the behavior, groping. I would have called it groping, still groping my vagina. What to you is predatory behavior? And you said you were sexually assaulted. Can you explain what that meant for you? It wasn't until four, five, four years later that I realized that that is actually sexual assault. To put your hands on somebody's genitalia um, forcibly um, and not remove it is is assault. But I didn't know that that was what it was at that time because um, these things are so normalized uh, in our industry, but also wider in society. You know, as women, we're used to having, unfortunately, we're used to having um, men grab our bodies unexpectedly and against our will and in a sexually aggressive way. And so, of course, it wasn't the first time that had happened. And um, I had learned at that stage, I'd learned all my life just to shut up and put up with it. Reporting would be seen as complaining and seen as being weak. Um, and so this is all structural patriarchy that I have to unpick within myself. You know, this was this was an example of me upholding the patriarchy. And eventually what I realised was that as unpleasant it was for me to experience this, it would be far more painful to know that other women were experiencing the same assaults and that I hadn't said anything about it. And so therefore I was actually also enabling his behavior. That was a pretty tough realization to come to. I mean, I guess for me, I've only been in the industry, I would say five years and already I've seen so much unprofessional and predatory behavior not just to myself, but also to my fellow female photographers. And a lot of times we would warn each other and we'd say, don't talk to this person or, you know, beware. But it gets to you at some point. You feel that you are, I think, less valuable than a male photographer, a male colleague. And I, I look up to you because you are one of the first that took still so long, but you kind of did it, facing, knowing and facing the consequences. At that time, in 2014, I'm not sure I even knew to label what had happened to me as sexual assault. I didn't have the language. And um, at that time, I, I didn't tell anyone because um, I asked myself the question internally, um, are you strong enough to put up with this sort of shit? And I think the, the hardest lesson I learned really through this process eventually of speaking out on the record um, to Kristen Chick in 2018 was that um, many people knew about this behavior and they turned a blind eye and others willfully covered it up for fear of reputational damage to their agency. And, and that's the pattern that I see happening again and again. It's, um, it's one thing to identify sexual predators 
to try and protect ourselves using the whisper network as best we can, to report behavior to people in positions of power, magazine editors, commissioners, agency staff, fellow photographers, um, anybody who chooses to collaborate with a predator is essentially enabling that behavior. So we can report to those people, but they seldom want to listen. And yeah, the thing I think about a lot right now is how we as individuals can affect change inside our industry. And yes, we can have dialogue with predators. Yes, we can call out behavior when we see it. Yes, we can report that behavior. Um, You know, all of these sort of like actions based around the behavior of the predator. But what is much more insidious and dangerous is the number of people it takes to enable this kind of behavior, the number of people who are not engaged in predatory behavior themselves, but who enable that violence and that abuse by staying silent or willfully covering it up. So yeah, I think about that a lot right now, that maybe the the most effective way to change things is to educate and embolden and enable our colleagues to, um, be aware of when they are um, enabling uh, predatory behavior and and to stop doing that. Maybe that is a way that we can really change the culture inside photojournalism. I know that we've we've spoken about this a few times earlier when some people are kind of one foot is with the victim and one foot is with the predator. So they don't want to lose both that friendship. Um, how do you choose? When it comes to the abuse um, and assault and harassment of any woman, there's a clear line in the sand as far as I'm concerned. You are either on the side of the survivor and the victim or you are on the side of the predator. It has to be that clear cut. I'm saying that laughing. I don't know what I like because I have to soften it somehow, but it has to be that clear cut. And beyond you know, um, the impact of this behavior on individuals. Think what it does to our industry. Think of all the the voices and the visions that we've lost or that have been dimmed because um, of the uh, abuse of young women. Yeah. We need their voices in our industry. So we need we need them. It's not just for them. We need them. Otherwise, our industry is irrelevant. And you asked me as well, like, why it took me so long to go on the record. The reason, one of the reasons it took me so long to speak out was because I had nobody to tell. And it wasn't until I contacted Kristen that um, I had someone who I trusted and who believed me. Anastasia here is referring to Kristen Chick a journalist who, in July 2018, published a special report in the Columbia Journalism Review titled Photojournalism's Moment of Reckoning. Kristen interviewed more than 50 people, including Anastasia, and through her reporting, continues to expose how prevalent and problematic sexual abuse is within photojournalism. I began writing about sexual abuse in photojournalism when the Columbia Journalism Review wanted to publish a story about it, and it quickly turned into something much um, bigger than we anticipated at the beginning. 
unfortunately, there are so many stories to be told in the industry that I just, that, you know, just more and more stories sort of unfolded from there. And so, you know, that's something I've been pursuing for the past, um, I guess it's almost, I guess it's about three years now. And, um, and that's really just because the, like the stories are there and they keep coming to me and people keep telling me, bringing them to me. Um, and so I keep reporting them and I, I'm, sad that there's so much to report but glad that i can do it so why the sudden noise around sexual harassment in the photo industry you know i think it just correlates with the with the broader me too movement we've seen this across every industry right since 2017 so i think it's just it's part of that you know people are are more willing to speak up now than they have been in the past and that's a good thing I mean, what are the consequences for women, women photographers that, what are the consequences that they face when they actually finally speak out? Um, That, of course, depends on the person, but a lot of women are afraid of losing opportunities in the industry. For a lot of the cases that I've written about, these people who've committed misconduct have been protected or enabled by people who are well-known and powerful in the industry. So mm-hmm. when a woman calls out that behavior, she's very often afraid that those powerful people at the top of the industry are no longer going to work with her. You know, I know some people lose friends, some people lose, you know, professional relationships, and there can also be personal costs that are less clear, but sometimes, you know, family members don't know about what has happened to a woman. And then if she speaks about it publicly, then she also has to tell her family about it. And that can raise really painful issues for some women as well. So, you know, there's a whole variety of costs. And then I haven't even talked about just the re-traumatization that can happen. Um, It is not easy, as we all know, to speak about you know, traumatic things that have happened to us. And so, I mean, I've, I've seen personally how difficult that is for the woman. Speaking with me is one is one thing that's difficult. And then speaking with me again and again, because these kinds of articles, um, you know, they're not done in two weeks. They take a long time and they're really difficult and they, they require a lot of, um, a lot of conversations as I do my best to verify information and make sure that everything I'm publishing is accurate and truthful, they can take a long time to to come out. And there's a lot of anxiety that builds up while I'm talking, speaking with women, while they're waiting for articles to come out, they're anticipating what the reaction is going to be. And, and that exacts a really high personal toll as well, just dealing with that trauma and anxiety and the things that it brings up for people. It's really hard. And it frustrates me that the the people who have been the victims of abuse in the first place are once again um, asked to pay the cost a second time when they come forward. And, you know, we haven't yet figured out a way to avoid that. A couple of years ago, I remember sitting with um, an elderly male um photo editor, I would say. And I remember he was complaining that it's now very unsafe for men to be 
at any point in a room with a woman because they might be confronted with allegations of sexual harassment against them. What do we do about that? I think that's a a really gross misunderstanding um, of of what's happening in the industry right now. And it's quite a selfish one as well. Um, it's, It's a statement that assumes that women are going around making false reports. And it's also a statement that assumes that reports that are received are not vetted and looked at for credibility. So, you know, honestly, I think that's, that's ridiculous. And, and that kind of sentiment hurts women even further, because if you're going to deny women opportunities, simply because you don't want to, you know, give them the opportunity to meet with you because you assume they're going to make false reports, then honestly, you have no business, you know, being in the industry. If you can't treat men and women the same, then you shouldn't be doing that job. There are obviously a lot of easy ways to behave responsibly. And if you do behave responsibly and ethically, then that isn't something you should have to worry about. How have men contributed and offered support in a sincere manner in the past? You know, there have been a number of men who have gone on the record to provide corroboration of accounts of women that I've written about. And that's something that's pretty simple to do. There are men who have, you know, been worried about what it would mean for them to have their name in the story supporting a woman's account of misconduct by a famous photographer. Um, But they did it anyways. And, you know, that's one way that they can show solidarity and support and advance the cause of responsibility and and clean up the industry is simply, you know, if they see something, they can talk about it. I think a lot of the men in the industry need to do a lot of work examining their own behavior and their colleagues' behavior and what is acceptable and what's not. And I don't know how that how that happens or how you get people to do that. But, you know, I do know that when norms change, people's behavior change changes. So changing norms perhaps requires the intervention of people who have the most power. How can we all make it safer uh, for more women to speak out? I think one way that people in the industry can make it safer for more women to speak out is to support those who do speak out and to show, show women who may not have spoken out yet, you know, that if you do, you won't be shunned you won't be cut out of social circles, you won't be cut out of assignments and work. I think that is one way people can show women it's safe. And and another, I think, is to take note of the allegations that are raised and when they're credible to act accordingly. I mean, I know I know a lot of women in the industry have spoken to me about watching you know, when someone who is well-known is investigated and even, you know, suspended from an agency and there are top photo editors in the industry who are still liking that photographer's Instagram posts. And, you know, that may seem like a small thing to someone, 
but to women who have spoken out or are contemplating speaking out, it speaks volumes to see these editors who might commission them or might not commission them now showing support, even in a small way, for someone who's been chastised by his own agency for misconduct. Actions like those matter. Tazim, what were your first reactions when you read Kristen's article? I felt very much disappointed. The women who spoke out were, especially afterwards, berated and sold off and their work and their personal, like their personality, every, their character became under questioning. And it was really disappointing to see by men, but that was expected, but more so by women um, in the industry. Why didn't you speak earlier? Why didn't you tell us before? Why didn't you have a voice to speak out? And, but you know, those men didn't rape you. They just said a flirtatious thing and that's okay. And, and I think those questions and that attacking, that pointing fingers to the women was not just insensitive, but that meant that there's more silencing of everyone else. I, as a, you know, as a Muslim, as a single mom, as a Saudi, as an Arab, I have no space to feel comfortable to share my own experiences for so many reasons. So I actually, personally, I, 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 you know, reached out to them and I told them that I'm, I hear you, I know you exist and I support you and thank you because I know how difficult it is to speak out against such behavior. I later published on my Facebook wall, for instance, and saying, you know, that just because this person is a friend of yours doesn't mean that he can do no wrong. And that if you've been safe around this person, that doesn't mean that they are not, um, they're not using that power dynamics to abuse other women who are just starting at their career, emerging or not. And it doesn't even mean that there's an age, like age is not really the issue here. It's just, I see myself superior over you. And I had other female, you know, photographers or editors approach me and say, but I think you should take this off because this man, you know, has is going through a lot of emotional troubles and struggles in their lives. So maybe he's he's not a rapist, though. He's just a troubled man. And I think this is where I personally felt uncomfortable and that there is a lot of injustice that happens because this man can be your neighbor your uncle, your friend, it doesn't mean that if you know him as a friend that he's okay and we can tolerate this behavior. I think that it took so many years for those few women to finally speak out and I still can't, I still can't imagine the number of people who won't ever speak out, who won't have the courage, the support or the ability to speak out. It's really disappointing, actually, to see people defend someone, even in those instances. I've always had the policy, I always believe, you know, the victim, the survivor, because it they always ultimately lose by, by coming out. I mean, I think it's cathartic to, to come and tell your story and eventually um, have your truth said and that this is what happened to me. But because of all of this backlash, because of all the people that question you, because your career changes, I always feel like they're martyrs. 
and that the women who spoke out in that article they were martyrs in in the sense that you know they're going to sacrifice and give up so much professionally and personally by speaking out and the the, the women who spoke out it took them so long mm. while they they themselves say that we are privileged women who've had a strong career and only later on did they feel comfortable speaking out can you imagine how many emerging younger photographers women of color who don't feel that's um in the same position that they're yeah. able to come out exactly and when it's anonymous also people will still defend will turn against the victims because if it's anonymous then how can you believe them and i think that's another point that we really need to address of you're not creating a safe space then for anyone to come out and use their name. And it's it's already bad enough that people are whispering. That means there's something to talk about. It reminds me when I think about this, it reminds me of when I was in a student newspaper and we had an incident where someone on the newspaper who was in an editorial position tried, well, um, sexually harassed someone who was also on the newspaper who was a writer I think at the time and the writer came forward and I remember him being really shocked that the situation was actually handled and he was dismissed and he stopped being it um I think it was deputy editor at the time um the people actually took it seriously and believed her and what it said to me and what it says to a lot of these men who you speak about who haven't apologized is that they've been getting away with this for a really long time. And they're used to getting away with it. And the moment that that didn't happen, they were like, wait, what? What do you mean I I can't keep being the top photographer at this leading outlet? Like, this is my life. This is what I do. And this is just, you know, this is, you know, par for the course for my brilliance, apparently. <laughs> and... It was just the shock and what really stood out to me the most during this this time when I was a student is that it was two of the male editors who really spoke up and made the guy apologize and would like call out anyone when they said something sexist. And I still remember and that was like over a decade ago because it was so profound because I hadn't heard a man stand up for a woman before. And call out, and and it's not like someone else had said, "Oh, this has happened." It's like this comment was made, and the first person to speak out was another male editor who said, "You need to apologize right now." And it was like if more, particularly male um, colleagues, editors, photographers, storytellers alike, were the first people to stand their ground and say, "This is wrong." We need to believe the person who's spoken out. Um, this person needs to be punished. This person needs to, well, face consequences, let's say. Um, whatever those, those consequences may be. It makes so much more of a difference. And it had such an impact on me because I was like, well, I'm not actually crazy. Like, you know, you can be of the other sex and still also believe that this is completely wrong. I'm assuming that there are more men out there that really think of themselves as allies, but that when it actually comes to the time to... It's hard work to be an ally. It's, it's actually hard work because like you said, when it comes to the time and you actually have to step up and say, I believe you, I believe this person, 
this is wrong. That's much harder because it, it takes a lot of sacrifice. Just, you know, not as much as the person who actually spoke out, but they know that they're going to lose something from this. In an ideal world, I think everyone would speak up, but I think there's so much more at play in terms of, you know, privilege and different circles of newsrooms. I think living on the continent, when the Me Too movement came out, um, a lot of women said, well, there's no room for us to speak out, you know, because women are still in some places fighting for access just to get to school, to, to have the right to work. Um, to get the job before you can even get harassed by said editor. The struggle is so long just to get to certain positions, to to even be in a position where that can happen, um, I think plays a big part. And worse off if you're more of a minority, depending on what kind of newsroom. I think for women of color, a lot, it's very, very difficult. Because also it's it's difficult because... They don't necessarily have the same, you know, access or opp- to opportunities to, to walk out and leave, you know, because one of the things about speaking out is undoubtedly, whether we'd like it or not, it's going to be harder to get um, jobs from certain people who are upset by your decision to speak out. And some people can afford to take that financial hit and some people cannot. Some people, so I'm saying like people who've experienced harassment, who are full-time employees in newsrooms, they it's really difficult for them, I think, um, to then turn around and say, I'm going to speak out of my editor, possibly not be hired by anyone, or there may not be another person to be hired by if you're working in a smaller town or a smaller industry. Your options are limited physically, like you don't have somewhere else you could go work or to get an income. Then what do you do? I want to ask, what is, in your opinion, harassment? For me, harassment is anything that makes me feel uncomfortable, um, puts me in an awkward position. It can be from slurs and insults to you trying to tap my bum or make suggestions about what I'm wearing to actually physically um, assaulting me or raping me. I, for me, harassment is anything that basically makes me uncomfortable. So it's anything that sexualizes you? Anything that sexualizes me, I think, um, for me, is, 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 is it. I think the one time I faced harassment in a workplace, I didn't feel comfortable speaking out because I was just starting out. I knew I was expendable. This person was really well respected and liked. And I just thought, okay, I'm just going to try to keep my head down and try to get reassigned to a different department and stay as far away from this person as possible. It seems that as women, we have to tiptoe around, navigate to, to, to stay as far away from a person that's hurt you and really shaking you at your core, but it's, we're making, I think we're just making them more comfortable. We're just making them feel that they can go on and do this. And now that I'm, like I said, I, I support women to speak out, knowing that I will only speak out when it's not my own experience, when it's not my own story. Then I can feel more at strength and power. But when it's my own experience, I just, yeah, go in fetus position. <laughs>
So that day in New York, when I was warned about a particular editor, I was luckily brought into that so-called whisper network. But as Kristen has reported, and I've also experienced, women of color are often left out of whisper networks and have more to lose when speaking out, making us more vulnerable to harassment. And while the Me Too movement has empowered many women to speak out, I question how much of that world it has really reached. So I decided to interview photo editor Tanvi Mishra in India about how the Me Too movement has impacted her country. During our conversation, she highlighted how our options as women to speak out and prosecute our abusers aren't just related to the color of our skin, but so many other social factors. How are you? How have you been? I've uh, I've been okay. Um, I feel really guilty because I feel like I have pushed this call so many times. Um, yeah. <laughs> so today I went for a walk. I was walking my dog before this and I was like, okay, let me look at all these questions that she sent me that day. And I was like, oh my God, like this is why I've been pushing it because it's such an explosive, not explosive, like it's, it like, gets a lot out that's like been sitting for a long time so i think i'm like i think subconsciously also been pushing it it's like let's just do it next week <laughs> but uh i'm sorry and you've been very patient so no i i know it's it's a very difficult topic to be honest i know from my own experience i know from each of our own experiences that it's not something easy to discuss Hello and welcome to We The People, I'm Gargi Rawat. The Me Too movement where women speak out against sexual harassment has well and truly arrived in India. And it's shaking up not just Bollywood, but the media as well. There was somebody that came out on Twitter alleging sexual harassment against a man. And then we saw this over the next month. Like it was a media and art and photography. It's this whole ecosystem kind of just flood the internet with allegations around men. Like it just needed that one window to open. All of us were deeply affected. Uh, now looking back, of course, I can also see the flaws with it. The one thing that I can say that it was not an inclusive movement. Like what are the terms that come to mind when we think of sexual violence and sexual harassment? And of course it's power and patriarchy that all of us as women face across the world. But India has this one, a uh, special um, uh, sort of um, uh, term, uh, which is the caste system, um, which is actually, uh, essentially it's a 3,000, more than 3,000 year old system that is embedded into the scriptures of Hinduism, uh, which is a majority religion in India, uh, which basically divides society into a hierarchical order. Um, so there are uh, there are upper castes and lower castes, and as, um, as the movements of oppressed communities have moved forward the terminology has also changed so it's not upper and lower it's uh the oppressor or dominant caste and it's the oppressed caste rather than kind of um uh, saying that someone is upper than the other so for women i think that within oppressed castes their reality is always going to be different from someone like mine i come from a dominant caste you know, a white per for a white person, it's very easy to say that there's no racism, but a black person always knows. A person of color always feels that there's discrimination, whereas a white person doesn't can say that. Oh, but you know, this place is not racist. It's the same in India. I'm not oppressed by caste. 
uh, and I'm from an oppressor community actually so I'm not oppressed by caste so I can say oh I've never felt caste in my life you know we don't believe in the caste system but the fact that I have access to everything that I do is completely a function of the caste system. And do you feel that the hashtag Me Too movement kind of did it affect India also? When the Me Too uh, allegations began coming out, there were so many articles that um, sort of uh, circulated that reporting on it is actually something that is not an anomaly. It's It's been happening. It, there's nowhere near enough, but it's been happening. And why I raise that is because even though reporting is going on and very good investigative reporting is going on, um, that somehow doesn't seem to bring people to book all the time. Um, and that's just something I wanted to leave there, you know, like what does it take to bring things to light and what is proof and what is a verifiable or like a, um, a or an allegation that people are willing to trust. And a lot of the answers that came at around the time of the movement was that, you know, if it is, um, if it's in a report, if it's in an investigative report, then it has more validity than say if it's on social media. The Caravan, a magazine where Tanvi worked as the creative director, published an investigative report in November 2018 in which 11 women spoke out against an alleged abuser, a well-known Indian artist. Tanvi was one of the 11. After how many years did it take you, I guess, the courage to first speak out and then, and how did you feel afterwards? Um, so I had interned with him when I was 19 and I remember uh, when the incident had first, I had, well, interned in the sense I worked with him for four days and I ran away after that. And on the fourth day, I basically like ran. I, I still distinctly remember that um, moment of like fleeing from his studio. Um, and I went to my mother and um, I said, I kind of told her what happened, but there was, I remember there being also a sense of shame and also I guess and maybe it's also same in Saudi but we don't speak very openly about like um, even things around sexuality so and not like I had done anything wrong but there was all this hesitation in speaking to my mother um, but I told her somewhat of what had happened and she said you know you do not go back there again but she also told me she said don't tell your father and I said, okay. And I, that's kind of what stayed with me. And then, um, but I do remember that my way of healing, and I think this is just my way of healing in other things as well, is for me to talk about things. Um, so for some reason, I started telling a couple of people, not for some reason, I guess, to get a sense of comfort. And so I telling a few friends at that time. And this is like... 15 years ago or something right so uh and at that time i remember there were my friends mothers and like so many people said oh this is an open secret but in some way the casualness with which they treated it um it sort of maybe played into my mind where it gave me some courage at that time to speak about it more openly because they were pretty open about whatever they'd heard that was kind of my story with it 15 years ago and then early on in 2018 uh, a reporter in our office um asked me if i would speak about it on record and this is post weinstein before india's me too moment and i had agreed and this is kind of like where i think trauma stays because i have always maintained that i have not been affected by that incident like i've been very stubborn about it saying 
no, it has not affected me. No, I'm not scarred. No, I'm not, you know, I'm fine. And, um, and I'm mostly fine. I still think that. But um, there was an article, uh, like a short showcase of him that was going to run in our magazine. And when I saw that, I totally lost it. Like I, I flipped my lid in the office and I said, this guy is a predator. And like he goes around harassing women. And how can we like run his thing in the magazine? And that's when one of our reporters found out about the story. And that's when she decided to interview me. I think a lot of women now are, I guess are either at a point where they don't always know if what's happened to them is um, worthy of speaking out. Did you feel that at the at the beginning, at least? Yeah, I think I went back and forth on it a lot because uh, um, we had quite a few interviews uh, for the piece. And I did, I do remember feeling that is my story... Like, is this serious enough, what I'm alleging? Um, is this something that, like... I mean, there was a point where I was just like, did I even get harassed or am I imagining this? And the thing is, the for me, in my mind, the visual of that room, and um, and I can very easily speak about it, you know? It doesn't... It, it does. It's strange. Trauma works for different ways for different people. And my way of, I get professional... Like dealing with this incident is just always to say that um you know i can talk about it what's the big deal i can describe it you know um but i do remember while while doing the reporting being like oh there are women who have faced so much worse like i wasn't raped like it there was there was you know things like penetration like that didn't happen um and and so i was like is this really harassment or is this just what's what happens and then she said put yourself in my shoes as a reporter and would you want me to discount your story and I said no and she always reminded me of women who were younger than me probably and reminded me of my position constantly saying that you're in a position in your career where or you know where you kind I feel a little bit less vulnerable I'm still vulnerable I feel every every woman is um but I'm a little less vulnerable I I think I'm more capable of taking up a fight than 10 years ago when I was entering the industry Uh, I don't know if I'll win that fight but so she reminded me of that and then I was like okay I have to tell my story we see that sometimes some agencies or publications sever ties with photographers that have one allegation against them while some fight to justify the the predatory history and to lawyers and a lot of damage to their reputation has already taken place. I think it really comes down and as do a lot of uh, as do a lot of these things. And I'm going to tie it into a, another question that you had for me, which is that, like, you know, what do publication, how should publications consider the reputation of photographers before hiring them? I think these two things are very interlinked. Um, and you know, when we speak about something like reputation, I feel that the whole industry works on reputation, right? And, uh, you know, somebody who comes with a good reputation, like this person meets the deadlines, this person, um, delivers on time, this person always gets you your shot. But I, as a person, my agenda is to give a chance to like emerging practitioners, etc. But that's not the agenda of like most publications, right? Most publications want to stay with their safe choices that that have been vetted by their own people. 
Traditionally, it's men who are in these systems of power and who are the men, who are the people that are vetted by them are the men in their systems of power. So that's what I'm saying. Like, reputation is a very important part here. And so just the same way that editors do a background check on who they hire, the sexual harassment complaints should be a part of the background check. So say, I'm sure... Um, you one would do a background check on say reporters in terms of oh does this reporter have any allegations of fudging information you would not hire them right like in journalism that's like a huge 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 issue why is sexual harassment not that huge an issue like that's what i kind of want to want to know and so it literally comes down to the person who's sitting there because some people may argue for the fact that oh there's no evidence other people will argue for the fact oh it's a social media allegation other people will argue for the fact oh it's in the paper but it's anonymous if you want to pick holes at it even if there are like 12 women 20 women 50 women if the person at the position of power is like no but you know i have this problem with it this case hasn't gone to court they'll still choose to work with that person. So unfortunately, with the systems that we have now and the complete lack of due process, um, it's it's dependent on people in power and which is why people in power need to use their position of power to build safer spaces. That's like, I feel that that's a duty. It's not a, it's not a choice. It's just something you have to do. I come from a conservative country that in the end, I cannot even speak out against um, my own experiences at many times. And I, I know that also the culture, and I think we, we share that similarity in that both our cultures usually will always point fingers at women for being, for dressing inappropriately, for speaking in a different voice, for being um, evocative for men. And that's why they are deserving for whatever they, they face. And I think that's why um, we're looking up right now to our Western female um, friends and and kind of saying we're cheering them on but it doesn't always have to be immediately reflective of of us and what we can do and what we can't do definitely i think um i think we have to we have to work towards an equitable society and i think that's a lifelong battle right so as long as there is oppression um there has to be a battle to to erase it so we have to do it in all our spheres i think keep at it the me too movement feels like it got um silenced not not silence it just like kind of it erupted and then there was nothing and this article came out and got brought back a lot and i think these conversations need to get restarted again so thank you for doing this yeah thank you so much for doing this do you have any words of wisdom even having this conversation um i feel that there one needs to be more of these and i think that um the net needs to widen to include uh, like you included me because um you wanted a diverse uh, uh, that word is very heavy so i would say like a, a perspective that's not just rooted in the west um and i think for me uh i need to expand this conversation outside of my circles and i think the ones that are in privilege need to make it a very conscious part of their work lives and their lives in general to enable women to speak louder. So courage is infectious. And I think that's what we need to build on. Like if there are enough of us maybe that raise the voice together and help those of us who are not in positions of privilege, maybe that's the protection that we can afford. 
when we get into the legal system it's very um i i'm not i don't have um a lot of faith but i've been really interested in where do we go from here because this is kind of just the beginning right like what how do we function in a world where one in every two people is harassed and abused um some stuff that i've thought about is one is to afford protection when a woman is going ahead to make the allegation i think something that helped me was the fact that i had institutional support so i knew that if i get sued my institution would back me up so i'm very privileged that way because i was making this allegation as an employee of the caravan uh, there's a financial burden that um survivors need to be helped with um but i think the larger burden is like the social boycott and the cost that they have to pay right that is something i don't know how you how you have protection um for it it's important to talk about this like as loudly as possible uh but also build systems of care that don't just forget about women after the allegation you know it's like all the women who came out in this article who's taking care of them who's looking out for them is there a system of care that um you know this must have impacted them and it's going to impact them for a long time when people react to the article so we need to be there for women long after the allegations are made my sincere thanks go to anastasia kristen and tanvi for having conversations with me i admire your bravery honesty and trust in me thanks again like what you heard today please share subscribe leave us a review and while you're at it do tell your friends and colleagues to give us a listen comments suggestions email us at repicture@everydayprojects.org The Everyday Project is supported in part by Open Society Foundations Culture and Arts, Code for Africa, Africa No Filter, and Adobe. This episode of Repicture was produced by Ali Gardner, Niasha Kadandra, and me, Tasnima Sultan. With the support of our team at The Everyday Projects, Austin Merrill, Peter DeCampo, Rebecca Gibeon, Mushera Njagi, John Edwin Mason, and Danielle Viasana. with music by Blue Dot Sessions and original theme by Hassan Hajeri.